Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good to see you guys this morning. My name is Kent. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and go with me to that passage that Marcus just read, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be for our time together this morning. Um, If you are new here this morning, this is your first time with us on a Sunday, first off, welcome. So glad that you're here. Uh, We are coming up on the end of a six-week teaching series that we've been in called Precious in His Sight. And if you haven't already seen from the bulletin when you came in or something like that, this at its core has been a teaching series about how we as followers of Jesus are called to advocate for and work towards racial justice, how that is a natural outworking of our faith in Jesus. So we've covered a lot of ground so far from God's heart for every tribe and every nation in week one to an understanding of biblical ideas like oppression and injustice in weeks two and three to some practicals last week in regards to how exactly we go about combating oppression in our day and age. We've kind of covered all this ground and I won't try to summarize it any more than that. Honestly, you should totally go back, listen to the series so far because there's just a lot that we have covered so far. And I I hope that you guys have been growing and learning from this series. Uh, I know I have and I was a part of planning the series. So hopefully that's been the case for you as well. Hopefully you've been growing in your understanding of all this stuff that we've been discussing. Um, But for today, what I wanted to do this morning with at least the bulk of the series sort of under our belt already is I wanted us to take a step back for a week and and do some practical equipping on one thing that I think is very important to this whole topic, everything that we've been covering so far. And that's how we talk to each other about issues like the ones in this series. How exactly we enter into conversations with other people in the body of Christ, in the family of God, about issues like race and racism. So so hopefully, especially after this series, there is sort of a general consensus among our church family that racism is indeed an issue in our world. Hopefully we're all on the same page on that. Hopefully there is a consensus among us as followers of Jesus that racism is a problem because it's an assault on the image of God in another human being. Hopefully we're all clear on that and in somewhat agreement on that. And hopefully, especially after this series, there is a common understanding that you and I as followers of Jesus are called to do something about that, that we're called to work towards justice in our world in some regard. On that, on that much, at least, hopefully there is somewhat widespread agreement among our church body. But that said, I do think there is bound to be some difference and some diversity of opinion among us on how exactly we should work toward justice. There's bound to be some difference of opinion as to what that means to do that on an individual level and what that means to do that on a communal level. Difference of opinion on what that means in terms of our politics, in terms of who we vote for and what party we vote for. There's probably going to be some diversity of opinion on which organizations we support and which organizations we don't support as followers of Jesus. There's going to be disagreement on what policies and what legislation we get behind and which ones we don't get behind. So my point is that while there shouldn't be much disagreement on whether or not we do something about injustice as followers of Jesus, there is bound to be some disagreement and some diversity of opinion at times on some of the ways that we go about that. And that's fine. That is to be expected in a diverse body such as our own. And unfortunately, when it comes to all of that, our society has not helped us any when it comes to how we relate to people who are different than us has not brought us much help at all. Right now, 
There is a tendency by many people on the political left to call most anyone right of them on the political spectrum a racist or a bigot or a xenophobe or whatever else and cancel them, write them off. And then there's a tendency by people on the right to call anyone left of them a Marxist or a socialist or a social justice warrior or any number of other things and write them off and cancel them. So here we are in the year 2021 as grown adults apparently unable to have intelligent conversations with people we disagree with without calling people names and essentially saying, I'm not friends with you anymore. It's like the elementary school playground all over again, just with tweets and Facebook accounts, right? That's kind of the situation that we're in at a societal level. But here's what I wanna talk about today. Over and over again in the scriptures, they are gonna point out that we as the family of God are called to approach our differences differently. That as followers of Jesus, we have the ability and the tools needed to show the world a healthier way forward when it comes to how we approach disagreement and diversity of opinions. Now, none of that is to say that the church has always done a great job of embodying that better posture. I think we've all seen a multitude of different examples of where they haven't, right? But my point is that it is possible. And the scriptures actually lay out how it is possible for us to approach those disagreements and that diversity well. So this morning, I wanna talk about how we do that. What tools do we have at our disposal as followers of Jesus to help us sustain this type of countercultural presence in our world, especially when it comes to talking about potentially divisive topics like the ones that we've discussed in this series. That's what I want to discuss this morning. I want to do that from Ephesians chapter 4. Now, real quick before we get to the passage, obviously Ephesians 4, you guys just heard it read a few moments ago. Obviously Ephesians 4 is not specifically talking about how we talk about race. That Paul's focus in this letter is actually a good bit more generic than that. He's actually talking about how we relate to one another in general. But that said, it obviously still applies when, we, when it comes to topics like race and racism. So I want us to dig into Ephesians 4 this morning and talk about how we talk about race. And chances are it will also be helpful in any conversations that we have with other followers of Jesus as well, but certainly when it comes to these topics. So I'm going to read through verses one through six one more time. I'm going to read them all at once, and then we'll spend the rest of our time walking back through the specifics of the passage. So Ephesians 4, starting in verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul, the author of Ephesians here, he kicks things off in chapter four with one massive, almost intimidating instruction to us as followers of Jesus. He says, we should, quote, walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which we have been called. That is a massive statement if you think about it. Now, when he uses the word calling here in this passage, he means our calling to be a part of God's family through the saving work of Jesus. That's what that terminology means there. So if you've read the book of Ephesians before, you know that Paul has just spent the entire first half of this letter expounding in great detail on what God has done for us in and through Jesus, through what happened on the cross. He has talked about the blessings that we have in Jesus, the power that we have access to in Jesus, the salvation and relationship that we have with God through Jesus. That's what he's been talking about so far. And then with most of that unpacked in the letter to the Ephesians, he turns in chapter four in this passage today, he turns to some instruction in light of all of that. And he says, therefore, in light of all of that that has been accomplished for us through Jesus, I urge all of you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. 
Now understand that by Paul saying this, he's not trying to say that we need to somehow earn or justify what God did for us through Jesus. That's not his point. His point is not that God is looking down from the heavens going, okay, I did all of that cross stuff for you guys, you better show yourself to be worth it. That's not God's posture towards us. What he's saying is that our lives, our day-to-day lives, how we go about scenarios and situations in our lives should be reflective of all of those realities about what God has accomplished for us through Jesus. That our lives, every single aspect of them should be a reflection of that incredible reality. When people see our lives as followers of Jesus, they should observe them and go, wow, something incredible must have happened to them to make them live in that sort of way because that is different. That's his goal. That's what he's trying to get at in this particular passage. Live in a manner worthy of your calling. Put another way, for our purposes this morning, if you and I talk to each other about things like race, in the exact same way as the world around us does, something has gone deeply wrong. If when we disagree about things, you and I resort to name calling and writing people off just like the society around us does, I think that indicates we have forgotten something really important about our calling in Jesus. Because that calling from Jesus should inform and shape every single aspect of our lives, even and especially how we approach things that are potentially divisive, like the topics that we've covered in this series. Paul wants us to live in all arenas of our life in a manner worthy of that calling. So next, Paul is going to give us four specifics as to what that looks like practically, what it looks like to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. So here's the things that he lists out. A life worthy of the calling we have received in Paul's mind includes things like first, humility, gentleness, patience, or we might call that bearing with one another in love. Those are sort of getting at the same idea. And lastly, an eagerness for unity. An eagerness for unity. Those four things should characterize the life of a follower of Jesus and therefore should characterize how a follower of Jesus has difficult conversations about things like race. So with the rest of our time, we're just going to break down each one of these. We're going to talk in detail about what each one means, and then we're going to try to apply each one to conversations like the ones we've had in mind during this series. That's what we're going to do for the remainder of our time. First, Paul mentions humility. Humility we might define like this, if you're looking for a definition. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you should. Not thinking of yourself more highly than you should. So humility, and maybe this will be helpful for you, to to me this is maybe the most helpful way to put it. Humility means you practice a healthy dose of self-suspicion. A healthy dose of self-suspicion. It means that at times you understand your view of yourself and others and situations can be clouded by your own sin. And because you understand that reality, you can acknowledge that you may be wrong on some things. You may be wrong on a bunch of things. And even in the things that you're right about, you, you realize that you're not right because of how awesome or wise or mature you are. You're right simply because God has given you the ability to see some things more clearly. So even in how you express being right about things, there's no swagger in your tone. There's no arrogance. There's no superiority or condescension towards other people because you know that you only see clearly by the sheer grace of God breaking into your life. So there's no reason to be arrogant about it. Now, by contrast... Here's a verse in Proverbs 26 talking about pride, which is the opposite of humility. It says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So pride is when you say, man, I see everything so clearly. And if everybody else could just get on my level and see things like I see them, then we'd really be able to fix some problems around here. That's the posture of pride. Pride is the posture that assumes in every scenario that you are always the teacher and other people are always the student. 
because you have lots of things to teach them. That's what it means to be, quote, wise in your own eyes. And if, that is your pro- if that's your posture, Proverbs just said there is more hope for a fool than there is for you. Because here's the thing, at least sometimes, a fool understands that they don't know things. A fool understands that there's some things that are beyond their expertise. And sometimes their foolishness gets exposed, and sometimes they change as a result of that. But for a prideful person, every disagreement they have just becomes one more example in their minds of how they get it and no one else does. It just serves to confirm their pre-existing bias. So if your posture is, I see things clearer than most people, you are not going to get much of anywhere when it comes to helpful conversations with others. Because humility demands that there is a mutual desire by two people in a conversation to hear and understand and consider where the other person is coming from. That's the idea behind humility. So let me give you a really quick uh, real life example of why I think humility is important when it comes to how it impacts conversations about race and racism. So Aunt Frederick, who was here last Sunday, you guys heard him teach last Sunday during this series. Uh, I knew him when he and his wife Hannah had just gotten married a number of years ago. For reference, Aunt is black, his wife Hannah is white, and he often tells this story in a number of sermons that he's given about how when they first got married to one another, for the first few years, there was a lot of tension and misunderstanding between the two of them when they would discuss issues of race. It was like they just couldn't get anywhere in the conversation. They kept getting frustrated with one another. When he would bring up racial issues or things that he was seeing happening in the world that weren't okay, when he would bring those things up with her, she wouldn't be able to see it and he would get really frustrated with her. He would, he would think and say things like, hey, there's no way that you can't see the problems that I see. You should be able to see the difficulties of being black in America like I see them. I can't understand how you don't see the very obvious things happening right in front of you. And Aunt says that after a few years of that in their marriage, Hannah finally turned to him one day and said, Aunt, I'm, I'm really sorry that I'm having trouble seeing this. I really do want to see what you see, but I'm struggling to see it like you see it. She says, where I grew up out in the country, she said, everyone was poor. She said, black people were poor, white people were poor, everyone was the same kind of poor, working the same kind of jobs. And she said, the only time that I saw a difference in people of color being treated differently based on the color of their skin was when I was applying to colleges and they were applying to colleges and I saw people who were less academically qualified than I was get into schools that I couldn't get into because they were people of color. So she said, I want to understand your experience. I really am trying to understand it more, but it's just different than my, underst- uh, than my experience, and so it's taken me some time to get there. And Aunt says now that that conversation made him realize he had been living with his wife for three years, insisting that she understand his experience while mostly neglecting to try to understand hers. When he talks about it now, when he talks about his posture during those first few years of his marriage, he will use the words pride and arrogance to describe his posture. It's not that he wasn't trying to get her to see something she needed to see. It was that his tone and his approach and his posture were off in the way that he was doing it. And that's what pride does. It makes us constantly convinced that other people are not understanding us while simultaneously preventing us from trying to understand them. And we could just as easily flip that situation around, right? It could be a white person trying to get a black person to understand something about their experience without first trying to understand theirs. It could be any man trying to get any woman to understand something about his experience without first trying to understand her experience as a woman. It could be any two people talking about most any topic in the world because pride, like most other sin, knows no boundary lines of race or gender or anything else. We are all susceptible to it, every single one of us. And the only way to undo pride's power is for all of us walking by the Spirit to approach these types of conversations with humility by seeing ourselves rightly 
and then seeking to understand the other person even more than we seek to be understood. So here's a very practical tip on how we can use humility and how we approach other people. So when you're in a conversation, the next time you're in a conversation where there is disagreement or even the potential for disagreement between you and the other person, here's what I want you to do. Listen to the other person enough to where you can summarize the case that they're making in a way they would agree with. The next time there's disagreement, I want you to listen to the other person well enough that you can summarize their perspective in a way that they agree with. So you can say, okay, if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is blank, and then give a summary. And you want them to be able to go, yep, that's basically what I'm saying. If you say that, and then they go, no, that's not what I'm saying at all, then that means you need to ask more questions. That means you need to listen even more. That means you need to try to understand even more, and then you need to try it Again, you see, so often what we do is we assume that we understand what the other person is saying because it sounds like other stuff that we've heard before, and we characterize their response into something unhelpful before we respond to it. So this is a way to guard against that. Approaching it with humility means that you listen to the point where you can summarize what the other person is trying to say, even if you may still disagree with it. And that's important, that last part. Because hear me on this, humility does not mean that you have to agree with everything the other person says. Somewhere along the line, I think we have been taught to believe that listening to someone is the same as approving of their behavior. Those are not the same thing. I saw a quote on Twitter this week that was, I think Aristotle said, the the mark of an enlightened mind is being able to entertain a different perspective without accepting it or approve of it. I think that's really, really smart. Being able to, to listen to someone does not mean you have to agree with everything they just said. It just means you have to listen enough to understand what they're saying. And that's what we're going for with humility. Second, Paul brings up gentleness. Gentleness. Here's a functional definition for gentleness. It means using the least amount of force or aggression necessary. Using the least amount of force or aggression necessary. So biblically speaking, gentleness is power, but it's power under control. That's the idea. So I've heard this explained before with the metaphor of a surgeon. So a a good surgeon is going to cut a patient only the absolutely necessary amount to correct a problem. They're going to do the minimal amount of damage possible. So a scalpel that a surgeon uses is a finely tuned, meticulous sort of instrument. A good surgeon does not bring in a hatchet and just start swinging at stuff until they fix the problem, right? They use a scalpel. They do only the amount of damage absolutely necessary. Okay, when it comes to disagreement or conversations that may include disagreement, we want to be like good surgeons. We need to spend time listening and understanding and praying and discerning. And then once we've done all that, once we've gotten clarity from the spirit on what exactly is going on and why, that's when we make our incision. For some of us, the reason that these types of conversations don't go well when we disagree with someone is because we are using the maximum amount of force possible. Figuratively speaking, we are coming in with a hatchet and just swinging until we hit something. That is no way to have helpful conversations with people we disagree with. So let me put put forward a not so hypothetical scenario when it comes to race that could benefit, I think, from some gentleness. So let me just show you how it works. Let's say person A in a conversation says the words, Black Lives Matter. Person B says, no, all lives matter. Person A says, you know what? You're the problem with our country because you are bothered by me saying something as simple as black lives matter. And then person B says, no, you're the problem because you're trying to imply that all lives don't matter. And then the hatchets are out, right? Is that not how it usually goes in our society right now? Both people making the maximum amount of pain possible. Now, I want you to watch what happens in that same hypothetical scenario if you sprinkle just a little bit of gentleness 
on that interaction. Person A says, Black Lives Matter. Person B says, hey, I, I can tell you're very passionate about this. If you don't mind, could you help me understand what you mean by that? Because sometimes it sounds like Black Lives Matter is trying to imply that other lives don't matter. And then person A says, oh, oh no, that's, that's not what I mean. Of course I think that everyone's life matters. I just think we have a long history in America of operating and legislating as if black lives don't matter. So I think it's especially important at this point in history that we say words like black lives matter. And then person B says, oh, okay, that helps me understand what you mean. And then they both hug and go grab milkshakes together. Maybe not the last part, right? Maybe not the last part just because of COVID and six feet distance and all of that. But do you see how much helpful, how much more productive that conversation was when both people chose to sprinkle just a little bit of gentleness on their, their interaction with the other person? That's what gentleness is. It's applying no more force, no more aggression than is necessary in the conversation. Now, hear me out on this. Sometimes a lot of force is necessary. A lot of force is necessary. When a person's actions and attitudes, for instance, are constantly visible, they're repetitive, they are unrepentant, and they are actively hurting a lot of people and they don't care about any of that, a good bit of force may be entirely necessary in that conversation. Just wanna be clear, I'm talking about verbal and emotional force, not physical force. But sometimes lately in our country, there's been confusion about what we mean by the word force, so I just wanna be clear here. Follower of Jesus never use, uses physical force to, sandal, to handle disagreements with other people. We're talking about verbal and emotional force here. So for instance, Jesus himself at times used a lot of force, used some aggression with his words to call out unhelpful behaviors. There's all kinds of stories about that in the gospels. But here's the thing, he didn't use that amount of force in every interaction he had. He didn't interact that way with every person. Jesus describes himself at one point as being gentle and lowly in heart. And that doesn't mean he wasn't bold when he needed to be bold. That didn't mean he didn't speak up when he needed to speak up. He did all of those things. But in how he did it, he did not use force just for the sake of force. He did not come at people more aggressively than he needed to just to win an argument. He didn't show up with a hatchet. He showed up with a scalpel. And that is how we should approach these conversations too. That's what gentleness looks like from a follower of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, but what if I am humble and gentle in these conversations and the other person chooses not to be those things back to me in return? That's where the third one comes in, which is patience. Patience. Paul also calls patience bearing with one another in love. Here's what this one means. Here's how we might define it. Patience is a willingness to sustain offense in the pursuit of unity. Patience is a willingness to sustain offense in the pursuit of unity. So patience is, is a willingness to bear with the other person knowing that they very well may offend you in the conversation. Other words that the Bible sometimes uses for these ideas are words like forbearance, and long-suffering. Forbearance means you have a predetermined posture of grace towards the other person. It is essentially pre-forgiveness, if you wanna think about it that way, pre-forgiveness. Practicing forbearance means that you understand other followers of Jesus are probably going to say or do things at times that are hurtful to you, but you decide in advance to forgive them for those things. You bear with them by choosing not to retaliate in those moments. Now, you need forbearance in all of your relationships. Your roommates, your friends, your spouse, your kids, your parents, you name it, right? If you cannot learn to practice forbearance towards other people, you are going to have a very difficult time with any relationship with other flawed humans in your life. But we especially need it, I think, when it comes to conversations where there might be disagreement like topics such as race and injustice. 
It is going to be very helpful for you in life if in conversations that you disagree with other people on, you decide in advance that you will not be shocked and offended and triggered at every single thing out of their mouth. It is going to be so helpful if you can have that predetermined posture in those conversations. If you can decide in advance, you know what? This person is probably going to say some things I don't like. They're probably going to say some things that I disagree with, that I see differently. So I'm going to prepare myself in advance to extend compassion towards them in those moments. Now, that's not to say you never engage them on those things. It's just that you don't engage them on every single thing that needs addressing. Now, think about it like this. Imagine how defeated we would feel if the Holy Spirit confronted us about every sin that we ever committed against him during the day. Every ill-motivated action, every split second of selfishness, every tiny expression of, of, of impatience in our life. What if the Holy Spirit confronted us on every single little sin throughout the day, no matter how small? we would all be so utterly defeated that we would never grow at all. We would feel so discouraged. But instead, the Holy Spirit shows us patience and forbearance. He, he bears with us, and some things he brings to our attention in the moment, some things he brings to our attention later, and some things are just covered by the incredible blood of Jesus shed on the cross. That, I think, is the perfect reference point for how we should live out our interpersonal relationships as well. That there are some things that we need to bring up and we need to address in the moment when they come up. No doubt about that. And yet, that does not mean that we need to engage them on every single sin that we ever see in them. Every single wrong mindset that we ever see in them. Doing it that way makes relationships impossible. Some things we can just show patience and forbearance towards them for. So here's one way that I've seen a lack of patience and bearing with one another when it comes to conversations about race. Uh, it's something that sociologists will call de-individualizing the outgroup. De-individualizing the outgroup. It sounds way more complicated than it is. It's actually very simple, but if you go to lunch with somebody after this, you should totally tell them that at church today we discuss de-individualizing the outgroup. They'll think all of us are way smarter than we actually are. You should totally do that. It's actually very simple. So here's what it means. De-individualizing the outgroup means that you and I generally in life, we tend to see people as individuals, right? We, we get, for the most part, that, that every single person in our life makes their own decisions about who they are and what they will do and what they won't do, that they're unique individuals. But sometimes when it comes to people that we disagree with that belong to a different group, an out-group, so to speak, we tend to forget that people are unique individuals. And we tend to assign their behavior to that of the whole group. So let me try to prove it to you in a non-racial context, and then we'll show you how it happens in a racial sort of context. Let's say, hypothetical scenario, that this fall, we are all hanging out at a game at Neyland Stadium. Fingers crossed that that's going to happen this fall, right? Let's say that a group of us are just hanging out at Neyland Stadium. Let's say it's the Georgia game. Georgia game is supposed to be here in Knoxville this year. We're hanging out at the Georgia game, having a great time. Let's say Tennessee has just scored their seventh touchdown of the game. It's, if it's hypothetical, you might as well make it a fantasy, right? So seventh touchdown of the game, we're just running up the score on the Bulldogs. It's going great. And right after we score that seventh touchdown, you and I look over to the Georgia fan section and we see one of the Georgia fans with a cup full of soda just chuck it down at the Tennessee sideline and hit a Tennessee player in the head with it. How are you and I going to react when that happens as Tennessee fans? Probably we're at least going to say something silently to ourselves like, Typical Georgia fan. You know, that is classic for a Georgia fan to act like that. Matter of fact, you know what? All Georgia fans are like that. They're just all classless, have no respect for the other team at all. That's just like a Georgia fan to do that. Okay, what you've just done is you've de-individualized the outgroup. You've taken the action of one specific Georgia fan 
and then you've extrapolated it and said it applies to the entire crew of Georgia fans. Georgia fans everywhere, nationwide, apparently are just all throwing soda at people in your mind. You de-individualize the outgroup. And here's how I know you've done that, because if the situation were reversed, like it likely will be, and Georgia is scoring seven touchdowns on us, and a Tennessee fan got mad and did the exact same thing, what would you say about that Tennessee fan? You would go, hey, I just wanna know, I want everyone to know that, that the actions of that Tennessee fan do not represent the actions of Tennessee fans as a whole. That person is unhinged, they are uncivilized, and no one who is a Tennessee fan should act like that. We individualize them, right? We isolate it from the whole group, but we don't when it's the out group. Okay, I think we do the exact same thing when it comes to issues of race, and specifically how politics forms how we see issues of race. So let's say you are white in ethnicity, and you see some footage on the news that some people at a Black Lives Matter protest have set a building on fire. There might be at least a temptation for some of us who are white to see that and go, see, that's the problem with these Black Lives Matter protesters. All they want to do is tear down and destroy things and ruin things, even though in reality, there were probably 2,000 protesters there that had nothing to do with setting the building on fire. But what we've just done is we've de-individualized the outgroup. We've said because one or a few people did this, therefore this whole group is like this, when that's absolutely not true, factually untrue. But if you're white and you see a white person on the news who just got fired for using a racial slur, or you see a white person on the news who, who just set a flag on fire at a black church, you're probably going to say something like, wow, what an awful individual. Something must have gone very wrong in his family for him to act like that. That is not what white people should be doing. That's not what white people stand for. You individualize and you isolate that person, but you don't do it with the outgroup. Or flip the situation around. Let's say you are black in ethnicity and you see a Trump supporter in the news yelling racial slurs or attending a white nationalist rally, torch in hand, marching, saying things that are incredibly offensive, incredibly racist. Internally, in your soul, it might be easy to go, wow, see, typical racist Trump supporter. That's just like a Trump supporter to do something like that. They're all like that. But what you've just done is you've de-individualized the outgroup. You've taken the actions of one individual or a few individuals and you've said that they apply and are true of the entire group when that is absolutely not true, factually untrue. So do you see how this works? This is what it looks like when we don't know how to show patience and forbearance towards other people is the first chance we get to de-individualize and, de and decide that the action of an individual applies to a whole group that we happen to not be a part of, we do it. That's what it looks like to have a lack of patience and forbearance. But on the other hand, bearing with one another means that we at least take the time to get to know people as individuals. Not as stereotypes, not as caricatures, not as voting blocks, but as individuals. If you've met a black person, do you know what you've met? One black person. If you met a white person, do you know who you've met? One white person. If you've met a Trump supporter, do you know what you've met? One Trump supporter. If you've met a BLM protester, you've met one BLM protester. We've got to stop with this temptation in us to know one thing about a person and decide that it describes the entirety of their personhood. That denies and rejects the Imago Dei in that person. I hope we realize that. It rejects the other person as an image bearer of God and turns them into to a statistic. And followers of Jesus should never be a part of acting that way towards other image bearers of God. Wouldn't it be better if when we met a person or, or even joined a life group with a person who is in the out group from our perspective, they're a part of a group that we do not identify with, whatever that might be, 
Wouldn't it be better if we took the time and the patience and the forbearance to get to know them as a person, as an individual? Wouldn't it be better if we took the time to acknowledge and understand that people are individuals with unique beliefs and experiences and convictions and stories and that they likely do not fit perfectly in the preconceived categories we have made for them in our mind? That's part of what it means to show patience and forbearance in our relationships with one another. And lastly, Paul says that we should be eager to maintain unity. Eager to maintain unity. Now, this language is really interesting to me, how Paul chooses to word this. Because Paul doesn't say that we as followers of Jesus should try to achieve unity right? He says we're called to maintain it. In other words, he says in Jesus, we all actually already have unity. That's what verses four through six in our passage are pointing out. He says there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so on. Paul's point is that we as followers of Jesus already have unity, or at bare minimum, we have access to it through the cross. And that because of that, we should seek as followers of Jesus to maintain that unity. For this one and everything we've talked about today, here's what you need to know. Jesus has already done what was required to make unity possible for his church. Jesus has already done what was required to create unity in his church. His death and resurrection saw to it that that was a reality for us. But here's the problem. Far too often, we are not eager to maintain unity. We're eager to break unity. Sometimes we start looking for any and every reason to divide and break unity with one another. Case in point, I looked this up this week. Case in point, as of last count, there are about 1,200 different Christian denominations in the United States alone. 1,200. Now, some of those, to be sure, have divided because of significant theological issues, right? Things that mattered, that there needed to be some clarity on. But some of them also divided over really silly things that they probably could have just decided to agree to disagree on. There are hills to die on, theologically speaking. There are not 1,200 theological hills to die on. There just aren't. At some point, I think you are well into majoring on some minors, right? As followers of Jesus, I think we could stand to grow a little in seeing past some of our differences in the name of unity. The temptation anytime there are differences among us is to immediately divide over it. That's what we tend to do. Specifically when it comes to racial issues, I think the temptation is to say, hey, because you voted for this person, I can't be in relationship with you. Because you support or didn't support this particular policy, I can't be in relationship with you. Because you want to go at the problem of racism and injustice slightly differently than I do, I can't be in relationship with you. That is the opposite of being eager to maintain unity. That's being eager to break unity with fellow followers of Jesus. Now, understand with this one that when I say unity, I don't mean we should just avoid difficult topics so that we can be unified. I think that's what a lot of people mean by unity right now. There's a lot of calls for unity both in and outside of the church. And I think sometimes when people use the word unity right now, is what, what they mean is, hey, let's not talk about anything that is partic particularly disagreeable or divisive so that we can be unified. That's not the goal of a church family just so we're all clear. The goal of a church family is not to ignore difficult or potentially divisive things so that we can be unified because that's not true unity. The goal of a church family isn't to ignore things that might divide us. The goal of a church family is to be willing to navigate directly into the difficult conversations knowing that the cross and resurrection of Jesus is big enough to sustain those conversations. Is big enough to sustain the relationship despite how those conversations go. It's knowing that however much we may differ or disagree on certain topics or specifics, we have the most important thing in common, and that's Jesus and what he accomplished for us through the cross and the resurrection. 
And because of that, within a, fa- within a family of Jesus followers, we always care more about the relationship than we do about our particular opinions on the issues. We welcome hard conversations and dialogue and even at times debate, but at the end of the day, we always see the other follower of Jesus as a fellow, blood-bought, forgiven brother or sister. That's how we view other people who are followers of Jesus. We see ourselves, all of us, as followers of Jesus first and then on down the list as white or black or Hispanic or Asian or conservative or liberal or honestly, I could care less about politics or whatever the category is. Those are not our primary identities as followers of Jesus. Our primary identity is accomplished through what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus died to give us as his followers unity. Now all we are called to do is to put forth the humility, gentleness, and patience to maintain that unity. That's our call. So today we're gonna end very practically with all of this. If if you've been around City Church for very long at all, you probably saw this coming from a mile away, so just act surprised at what we're about to do. But here's what I'm going to invite all of us to do. If you're in the room today and and you're a follower of Jesus, would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and there is currently any lack of unity of any sort between you and another person in our church or between you and any other follower of Jesus, I want to exhort you by the power and the authority of the resurrected Jesus to go and deal with it today. Whatever that might be, whatever the issue is, maybe there's disagreement over issues connected to race and injustice and all the things we've been discussing during this series. Maybe it's that specifically. Maybe it's another issue entirely that has nothing to do with any of that. Maybe there's conflict between you and another person that hasn't been dealt with or hasn't been resolved. Maybe there's residing frustration with someone that you haven't even brought up with them yet. But whatever it is, I want to encourage you to deal with it today, right now. That's part of what it means to be eager about unity. It means you don't put things like that on hold. It means it may be a thing where where one or both of you need to repent of something. It may be a situation where you just need to agree to disagree on something and still care for one another and live in relationship with one another because the person is more important than the specifics of the issues. But one way or another, let's show that we are eager to maintain the unity that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. So we're going to sing some songs here in a bit, just like we usually do, but we're going to give you a little bit of time first, just kind of a moment to reflect and consider if there's anything you need to do, if there's any conversation that you need to have, if there's any phone call you need to make. The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus makes it clear that if we are worshiping Jesus We're singing songs to Jesus without first making things right in our relationships with one another. Jesus says that is not worship that Jesus is interested in because it's not true worship. A right relationship with God should naturally flesh itself out in good, healthy relationships with one another. If there's disunity between you and another follower of Jesus, God would rather you deal with that than just respond by singing songs to Jesus. So let's actually deal with whatever it is. If you've been around City Church for very long, like I said, you know how this works. Go and pull the person aside here in just a bit. Step into the lobby, step into the hallway back here, step outside, go outside and text somebody, call somebody, whatever it is you need to do. But actually, let's make sure that we're not just hearing and nodding along with the words of Paul in Ephesians 4, but that we're actually practicing them. That's very important to us here at City Church is not just that we know things about God and the Bible, but that we practice things about God in the Bible. So that's what we're going to do now. I'll ask the band to come on up. I'm going to pray for us as we kind of take some time to do all of that. Um, Father, I want to thank you for sending Jesus to make unity possible for us. God, unity despite um, disagreement is something that is near impossible to achieve for any length of time 
outside of the good news of Jesus taking root in people's hearts. And so God, the fact that you would send your son Jesus to the cross so that we could live in relationship with one another, so that there could be something beyond, something better than our disagreements is incredible. And God, I I pray that we never forget that as your people. God, I pray that um, as we enter into a little bit of time just to consider whether or not we are practicing these things, I want to pray that we would hear you loud and clear. God, that we wouldn't shy away from difficult conversations, that we wouldn't that we wouldn't resist your voice. God, I want to pray that um, even right now as we sit here and pray, God, no doubt some of us have one particular person or even a couple people that are coming to our minds immediately and we just know we need to deal with it. And so, God, I just want to pray against any resistance to those things. God, I want to pray that your spirit would give us the the boldness and the courage and the willingness to have those conversations. God, whatever it is, if it's an issue between us and another follower of Jesus, you have already made a way for there to be reconciliation, for there to be forgiveness, for there to be the ability to work through and care for one another. And so God, I just pray that we would have the uh, wherewithal, the, the willingness to live that out. God, you sent your son to give us unity. I I pray that we would be willing to maintain it. That we would be willing to pursue it. And God, I, I pray that we would do all of that as an act of worship to you. God, that every time there's forgiveness, every time there's reconciliation, anytime there's a wrong, a soured relationship that gets made right, God, I pray that would create a gratitude in us for you and for your son's work on the cross. And so God, I pray that all of this would lead to worship in the hearts of your people. God, would you give us the courage, give us the boldness, give us the willingness to be eager to maintain unity in the spirit. We ask this in your name.